0: The Peter Schiff Show. Hello, everybody. This is another live Peter Schiff Show podcast, except this time I am doing it from my hotel room here in London, England, where it's after 10 o'clock in the evening. But I had one hell of a morning waking up uh, very early, earlier than I had intended, only to discover that my Twitter account had been hacked. But not just my Twitter account, my cell phone, one of my email accounts was also hacked. I think it was all part of the same scam. I think the intention of the hacker was really to take over the Twitter account because I haven't been able to figure out any other damage that was done. I think it got started around 3.30 in the morning, London time, uh, when the hacker was able to convince my cell phone provider to switch my SIM from my phone to his phone. So obviously, he had some personal information to convince the carrier uh, that, that he was me. And once he took over my cell phone, I don't know if he needed that to get my email, but maybe he went into my email and said that he forgot his password and he needed a new password. And they verified it with my cell phone, which he had, and he was able to verify that he was me because he had the the phone and he was able to get into my email account. Of course, the minute he got in there, he changed all the passwords to lock me out and then was able to probably go into my Twitter account again, change the password. He had my email, he had my cell phone. That's all he needed to get into my Twitter account. And as soon as he got into my Twitter account, he disabled comments and started promoting some scam crypto token that was in some way related to gold i really couldn't tell and uh began you know sending out a series of tweets encouraging people to go to this website and if you went to the website uh, it was meant to look like it was me that i was behind this thing that i owned it or i started it and um and it invited people to get some um some golds or some tokens. I don't know if if you got them for free or you had to buy them. If it was a giveaway, I I, I don't really know. But apparently I read that if you clicked on that link and provided your wallet address or whatever it was asking for, that it potentially would drain the wallet of your content. So instead of you getting some free uh, gold token, you would end up losing whatever, you know, Bitcoin or Ethereum, whatever else you had in your wallet. I don't even know how this stuff works. If that's even possible but i had read some of this stuff and so i spent the morning trying to unravel this mess it took a long time to convince uh the email company that 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 it was me i had to go through all kinds of stuff eventually i had to send them my my driver's license photograph and and then they said the picture was too blurry so it was a big deal to just get my email account back for my cell phone, it took even longer. And because the carrier wasn't even open, they didn't have 24 seven support. So I had to wait like two and a half, three hours in order to get my my phone number back, which I eventually was able to do. What happened with the Twitter account is that I think Twitter just shut it down. Because I have not been able to regain access to that Twitter account. But I don't think the scammer has access either. Because all of the scam tweets, have been removed from the account. In fact, Twitter removed the last two or three days of tweets. So there were plenty of legitimate tweets that were mine that were also removed, but they removed all the scam tweets. So hopefully nobody fell for this. I hope the people that follow me on Twitter are too smart to get suckered in to this scam. Uh, but just you know, so you know for future reference, that's not the type of thing I'm likely to do. I mean, if I do get involved in one of these projects in the future, it's not gonna be announced that way with like these types of tweets. Uh, So if you see it again, you know, just, you know, I was likely hacked again. Hopefully it's not gonna happen a second time. You know, there are a lot of people who thought when I tweeted out about the art project, that that was a hack. It wasn't, that was actually legitimate. Uh, But maybe, you know, that helped make this look a little bit more legitimate because I had already kind of gone down that path a little bit by doing something related to crypto. Although this is more related to art, Uh, I just found an angle to incorporate crypto into the art, but maybe it made it less believable or more believable rather uh, that I would do something like this And, and hopefully it didn't happen. My son Spencer was one of the first people who noticed it and he immediately sent me some text messages but of course i wouldn't have gotten them because i was asleep because it was 4 a.m in in london and then by the time i woke up i didn't even have access to to my phone anymore because once they swap your sim you can't use your phone you can't send and receive texts you can't make phone calls because you no longer really have a sim on your um on, on your account so but he when he didn't hear back from me he was pretty sure That it was a hack and he tweeted out something and then a lot of people picked up on that so hopefully spencer saved some people because then there was some uh news out there i'm really surprised though that there isn't a quicker way uh to uh inform twitter because when i went and i you know went into the twitter app initially before i even got locked out which now nobody can get in but i told them that i thought my account was hacked and I had no access and they said, okay, the process is going to take a few days and then we'll get back to you. I think they need to have a a quicker way of resolving a situation where an account has been hacked, especially an account with a lot of followers. You know, I've got close to a million followers. And if the hack is trying to scam people out of money, you would think that you know there would be some type of prioritization uh, of a hacked account that has a lot of followers. Uh, to you know not just throw it in some random queue where it's gonna they're gonna get to it in two or three days i mean they should have kind of prioritized it so that they could have shut it down quicker before more people had an opportunity to lose that money but by the way so the the art project that i'm doing because i know i talked to the the artist about it he was a little concerned that maybe people would be reluctant when visiting that site they would think it was also a scam so it's not that website is onemarketprice.com and since I did my last podcast, the site has been updated. You can now register on the site for the auction, uh, which I think is gonna happen on the 9th of June. That is the day that I am gonna be live in the gallery in Manhattan along with the artist and the the print or the the, the oil painting, the original painting. We're gonna have the prints there too. In fact, I think we may be signing them uh, live uh, at the event. It's at 295 Madison Avenue in New York. I think it's on the corner of what 49th Street, something like that. So it's a very a good location in the city. In fact, the gallery is open now. You can go by whenever you want. You can look at the painting. You can look at the other paintings that are on display. Uh, all of them, all of which are for sale. But the one in particular that I'm looking interested in is the gold piece, and you can see a picture of that on the uh on on the website as well so that is legitimate and don't worry about it there's no you know whatever information you put in there is going to be kept confidential you don't have to worry about a drain or if that's even possible uh so don't confuse that legitimate project with this scam and hopefully i will regain access to my twitter account and be able to to tweet again but you know this is a lesson i mean it's not that difficult for thieves to do this And I know I'm not the only person uh, who who has had this type of hack recently. There's been some other high-profile Twitter hacks in particular. So always, uh, always beware. And I'm going to try to better protect my data in the future to hopefully make it less likely that something like this will happen. Anyway, let me move on to some of the more important things that I'd like to talk about on this podcast. In particular, the market moving... Uh, data that came out on Friday where we got the official employment report, the employment situation for May, uh, the non-FAR payrolls numbers and of course that also followed the ADP release that came out the day before on Thursday. Normally we get that number on Wednesday but we ended up getting it on Thursday so we had back-to-back uh, releases with somewhat different Uh, results when it comes to the market. So I'm going to talk about, about that, about the market reaction and about the data at the other side of this break. So stick around. I will be right back. and saving for an emergency fund because life is like a good movie. It loves a good plot twist. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast on your favorite podcast app. Future you will thank you. So let me start by talking about the jobs number that came out on Thursday, and that is the official non-farm payroll number from ADP. And that number was supposed to come out at 160,000 jobs created and the number actually came out at 278,000 jobs so not quite double estimates but a big number it was well above the expectation which was 150,000 to 200,000 jobs and the, the prior month's number was only revised slightly lower from 296,000 to 291,000, so it was a much stronger number that had been expected. And in fact, earlier that morning, we got the Challenger job cuts numbers, and that was a big number. You know, it, the prior month was 66,995 jobs created or eliminated, and the the number for May was over 80,000 jobs, 80,089. So that was a big number. And maybe after that number came out, some people might have thought that we would have had a weaker uh, ADP number instead of the much stronger ADP number that we ended up getting. But again, you know, looking beneath the surface of that number and, you know, you don't have to look too deep to really see the problems with the number. 75% of those jobs, 208,000, were in leisure and hospitality. Those are waiters bartenders, uh, hotel maids, stuff like that. I mean, these are some of the lowest paying jobs that exist. And those are the ones that we are creating. You know, we lost 48,000 manufacturing jobs. That's a lot of jobs. Those are good paying jobs. Chances are all those jobs were full time. Whereas a lot of these jobs that are added in hotels and bars and stuff like that, they're probably part time jobs. So we are trading high paying, full time, productive jobs for low paying, part time, service sector jobs. This is not a good trade off. I think the people that got some of these jobs are not happy about having them. I think they'd prefer to have the better job that they lost, rather than the two or three crappy jobs that they had to hobble together to try to make up for that loss. You know, also, We lost 35,000 jobs in financial services. You know, those I don't think are as important uh, as the manufacturing jobs, but they are generally high paying. You know, the financial service industry is one of the higher paying service sectors out there. So maybe somebody lost their job working for a bank, and now they got two or three jobs tending bar and waiting tables, right? That's good for this number because, you know, you lose one and you get three. So you're plus two, so you get more jobs. But, you know, the workers aren't getting you know, more job satisfaction and they're probably getting less money, you know, especially if they have to travel between jobs. And that, you know, that takes time and they, they can't get paid for that. So I don't think the number was strong. But, you know, the markets don't tend to look at, you know, down deep. They just kind of look at the superficial number because that's probably what goes into the algorithms that kick off all the computer trading. And so they saw this stronger than expected number. And of course, initially, gold sold off, the dollar rallied. But then the markets reversed. We had a pretty strong rally in gold, you know, maybe up about 20 bucks, 15, 20 bucks. Uh, The dollar sold off. And I thought, you know, maybe the markets are finally uh, moving past this. You know, we got a stronger number and, you know, the market shrugged it off. Gold shrugged it off. Uh, maybe, you know, the correction is over, maybe we flushed out all the week longs. um, And, uh, you know, now gold's going to move up. And, you know, in fact, we got more weak data, too. I mean, the employment data didn't appear weak. But a lot of the other data did productivity and costs we got for q1. Um, And even though the number was not as bad as they thought, it was still a down number It was minus 2.1% on the quarter, productivity going down is not a good news, even if it, if it went down uh, somewhat less than they thought. And the reason it was down less was because unit labor costs didn't rise as much as people thought. They were supposed to go up by 6.3% and they went up by 42 Now maybe the markets looked at that as somehow good news on inflation because they saw a lower print for labor costs and they thought that, that might be a positive. The PMI numbers we got, uh, came out this was the the main number at 48.4. That was another weak number below 50. And the ISM manufacturing was weak also even slightly weaker than expected. It was supposed to come out at 47. And it came out at 46.9. Again, anything below 50 indicates contraction, recession. And so we're clearly in that category. Uh, The prior month was 4.71. But also we have all these weak economic data that we keep getting. Why do we keep getting these strong jobs numbers, especially the report we got on Friday, yesterday from the government, because this was an even bigger upside surprise than the ADP number. But of course, beneath the surface, it probably has even more problems and inconsistencies that call into question the validity of these numbers. So, the expectation for the jobs number for May was 190,000. And the low end of the range was 100,000. And the high end was 265,000. The number came out at 339,000 jobs, way above estimates. And as soon as the number came out, the price of gold tanked, maybe down about 15, 20 bucks initially right away, just like the initial reaction to the ADP dollar went up the, the, the reaction that you would expect, because that's the type of reaction that we had been getting. And in fact, the number was even stronger. If you look at the upward revisions to the prior couple of months, because we added about 93 million more jobs because of the or, or not 93 million 93,000 94,000 93,000, excuse me, additional jobs, not 93,000 jobs uh, were added uh, to the prior couple of months. So it was an even bigger beat. But what was somewhat surprising, given all those jobs being created, is that the unemployment rate rose from 3.5% to 3.7%. Nobody expected that. That was a big jump from the 3.4% from the month before and above expectations, which were 3.4 to 3.5. So that was bad news about the economy, but maybe it's somewhat good news if you're thinking it takes some pressure off the Fed. But bond prices fell, yields rose, mainly due to the the top line, the top number being so strong. In fact, if you look at these jobs numbers that have been coming out, this is not the first time that we've got a, a strong jobs number. In fact, out of the last 13, Jobs reports that we've got that's just over a year. Twelve of the thirteen have beaten the consensus. That to me, you know, doesn't make sense. That it would be twelve out of thirteen. You figure that they'd come under a few times, but for it to only miss one time, to me, that raises eyebrows. Why are the numbers as strong as they are? And again, you know, if you look at the numbers, um, the jobs are in uh the lower paying industries part-time we lost manufacturing jobs not as many as uh, ADP claims according to the government we only lost 2,000 manufacturing jobs so I don't know why there's such a big difference there but it shows you that you know these are not you know actual numbers there's a lot of guesswork that's got to go into this if the private sector survey says 45,000 jobs lost and the government says 2,000 right who knows where the truth is or how accurate the numbers are but to me if you look at what's happening in the economy, if you look at the increase in interest rates, that is a huge drag on the economy, on the purchasing power of consumers, on the profits of a business, it doesn't make sense that we would have all these new jobs, right? If this was really this booming labor market, why would it be booming when the economy has all these, these headwinds of rising interest rates, uh, inflation, pushing up the cost of doing business, you've got a lot of layoffs, you hear all these layoffs that are being announced in financial services, in tech in manufacturing. Uh, why are there all these jobs? Again, my explanation seems to make sense, in that we're just counting numbers of jobs, not number of workers. And we're, we're overstating how many people are in the labor force because so many people are working multiple jobs. In fact, the labor force participation rate did not go up at all uh, last month. It stayed at 62.6, and average hourly earnings were down slightly from where they were the prior month. They were at 4.4% year over year, and now they're at 4.3%, and hours work, average uh, uh, hours worked, dropped a bit to 34.3 hours. But again, given what's going on in the economy, it makes no sense that the the labor market is really strong. And what really called the number into question again was the big divergence, and this is not new, between the official numbers and the household survey. Because according to that household survey, there was a loss of jobs. In the month of May, not a gain, I think 310,000 jobs were lost. So the household survey says we lost 310,000 jobs. The government says no, we gained uh, over 300,000 jobs. The mirror image of those surveys obviously one of them is wrong. And in fact, if you break it down, they show that about 220,000 full time jobs were lost and part time jobs. There were even part time jobs that were lost, according to the household survey. So there's a lot of reasons to be skeptical. And by the way, and I still don't fully understand the birth death model. But something like 70% uh, of the jobs that were created over 200,000 jobs um, in the government number, the official number, were from the birth death model. Now, what is that? Well, that is where the government just assumes that a certain number of businesses were created during the month and that those those brand new businesses must have hired people and they just attribute a certain number and that was over 200,000 um, people. It was a big number. Now, you know, we've, we've been getting quite a few of these big numbers. This is not the biggest one we've had. We've had other large numbers, but this number contributes substantially to the total and it's it's made up. They don't really know how many jobs were created? Maybe there weren't any. Maybe jobs were actually lost. Maybe the government is assuming that businesses were born. But in fact, they actually died. Maybe that's what's happening. It seems to me that it's more likely that people would be going out of business right now than forming businesses. And, 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 and so I think these numbers are way off. And maybe the government is just assuming that these new businesses are hiring a lot of people when maybe they're just self-employed people. They're going into business and creating zero jobs. They're they're, they're the only job because it's just a self-employed type thing. Uh, So none of these numbers make any sense to me. And so I kind of take them with a grain of salt, but apparently the market didn't because we got uh, another reaction that was even bigger uh, than the one we got on Thursday. I'm gonna talk about that on the other side of the break. So stick around. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? the jobs report. It's one of the strongest days I've seen in the stock market in some time. The Dow finished up better than 700 points on Friday. That's a gain of about 2%, a little over 2%. These small caps, which had been lagging, they liked it even more. They were up 3.5% on the day. So you saw a much bigger uh, reaction in the small caps, which are more economically sensitive. For some reason, I guess they really liked the strong jobs number because they think it's strong enough to help the economy or to show that we're not in recession, but not quite strong enough to push the Fed because they probably uh, took some comfort from the backup in the unemployment rate and they thought, oh, unemployment rising, that may keep the Fed at bay, maybe we'll get a pause or at least a you know a, a, a time out. Uh, you know, shortly, or they'll skip a meeting on the next rate hike or something. So that might have been part of the driver for the movement in the stocks. The NASDAQ, not quite as strong. Of course, it did hit a new uh, high today, a new 52-week high. It's the only index that is making new highs, but it was a laggard. In fact, the, uh, the NASDAQ 100, the QQQ, was up less than 1% on the day. So the tech stocks uh, getting uh, getting a rest relative to the rest of the market. The sector that got hammered, were the miners, the gold and silver stocks, which did very well on Thursday. I mean, they when they didn't sell off based on the strong ADP number, uh, we got a big rally. They didn't shrug off the strong uh, non-farm rally. And I think one of the uh, the reasons that gold reacted weaker on Friday than it did on Thursday was, A, we had a rally already on Thursday. So, you know, gold had, had rallied, but also, I think the strong movement in the stock market probably uh, got people to lose interest in gold and gold mining stocks when you had such a strong day in the market. There has been developing a bit of a negative correlation, and it's not every day, but I've I've noticed it, that when the stock market is going down, that's when you start to see some interest in the gold stocks. Uh, And so when the stock market is booming. Uh, then those stocks are going to have a headwind. And I think that's one of the reasons that you saw weakness. It wasn't even so much that it was the strength of the jobs market, but it was the strength of the stock market that I think was undermining gold. Because we didn't see this kind of strength in the stock market on Thursday, and gold was able to rally in the face of a strong jobs report, but it wasn't able to do that on Friday because it also had the headwind of this booming stock market. So at the end of the day, gold was down about 30 bucks. That was pretty much the low of the day. I mean, gold was down and then it fell all day. It never really recovered. It didn't even try to recover. I didn't see any kind of rally at all following the initial drop uh, after we got that jobs report. In fact, it was just a slow and steady grind lower for the rest of the day Uh, silver also down gold below 1950 on the week 1947 but still you know I think holding in a narrow range that to me is bullish it's consolidating waiting for the next move up the dollar did rally but you know it sold off the day before so the two days combined were about a push the dollar index closed the week just above 104 I think at 104 spot 03 so I still think that the news is bad. I don't care about these headline jobs numbers. I think, you know, they're a bunch of BS personally. Uh, I don't buy it. I think all the other evidence that confirms that the economy is weak and that it's in recession, people keep saying, how can an economy be in recession if it's creating all these jobs? Well, if you're in a recession where people are forced to take more jobs, because the economy is so weak and prices are so high, they can't get by on one job and they need more jobs. And so those additional jobs get reflected in these job numbers. That doesn't show that the economy is strong. A strong economy is an economy where people don't have to work as hard, where you can get by with one job. In fact, you can do more than get by. Uh, You can save more. And also, if you look at the numbers that we've been getting the manufacturing numbers, again, losses in the manufacturing sector, we just got that bigger than expected merchandise trade deficit, I talked about that all the ISM uh, PMI numbers in manufacturing all very weak. To me, that's a weak economy, a weak economy isn't as productive, and a weak economy that is producing less and therefore relying more on imports means we're gonna have bigger budget deficits. We're going to have more inflation because those deficits are going to have to be monetized regardless of the position the fed is taking now so all this stuff is negative Uh, whether or not the traders can recognize that right now they don't Uh, but ultimately the fundamentals are going to prevail we are in a weak economy high inflation environment weak economy strong inflation stagflation that's where we are uh everybody is in denial uh but over time, the markets are going to have to accept this reality. Before they do, that's when you have an opportunity to move more money, uh, you know, into the defensive assets, the assets that will do well in an environment where you have inflation, where you have weak economic growth, foreign stocks, uh, commodities, precious metals. I think the opposite really of what you saw today, where you had strength in 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 U.S. stocks and weakness in commodities. Although oil prices uh, had a good day and oil stocks did well. It was just the the precious metals uh, that were sold off. But I think those are the types of investments that will do well when people get their arms around this reality. Now, also, you know, people are still celebrating, I guess, that the debt ceiling crisis is over. You know, since my last podcast, when I talked about it before, I did a podcast on Wednesday and it was that evening that the House of Representatives was voting to pass the Fiscal Responsibility Act, which raised the debt ceiling, didn't raise the ceiling. It was even less responsible than that. They suspended the ceiling. So the sky is the limit right now for the next couple of years. And they had the nerve to call that fiscal responsibility, even though it was the height of irresponsibility. But when I started doing that podcast, They hadn't voted yet, Uh, but I was pretty sure that they were going to pass it. And that's, in fact, what they did. The House passed it. And since that time, the Senate has now passed the the debt ceiling hike as well. And I said that was pretty much a formality. I knew that was going to happen. And so now it just needs um, um, President um, to put his John Hancock on that bill, which I'm sure Biden will do. I don't think he's done it yet, and it will be a big ceremony. Uh, on, you know, and he's going to sign that bill and uh, and so that's it. And so I think the markets maybe breathed a collective sigh of relief because this contrived crisis uh, was over. But again, it was not a crisis. The debt ceiling was not the crisis. The crisis is the debt. The ceiling was trying to contain that crisis, trying to mitigate that crisis. And so what we actually did is we removed uh, the protection that we had as minimal as it is. uh, And we allowed the real crisis, which is the debt to get bigger and bigger and bigger. And you know, I get asked a lot, you know, what what would be my solution? I mean, what do we do? Because I keep saying, hey, we can't raise the debt ceiling. All right, well, then what do we do? Well, I've got a solution to this problem. The problem with my solution is that no politician would dare propose it because the crisis that it would create personally for the politicians is the problem. In fact, the real reason that raising the debt ceiling was a crisis. It was a crisis for the politicians because if they didn't raise it, they were going to be forced to face reality. They were going to have to go back to their constituents and tell them the truth that the government is broke. And that they can't afford to pay all the commitments that they made to win the votes of the people who elected them. That was the crisis. It was a crisis of having to be honest with your constituents. And no politician wants to be honest. So that really was the nature of the crisis. It was a crisis for Congress. It wasn't a crisis for the people. <laughs> and, and so Congress had to raise the debt ceiling to eliminate that crisis so it can go back to business as usual, continuously promising something for nothing and having and not having to deal with the consequences or any kind of day of reckoning. My solution is to deal with the crisis. Don't allow the crisis to get bigger. Deal with it right now and don't wait for the crisis to explode and have the markets force you to do the right thing. Because when the markets force you to do the right thing, it's going to be a lot more painful than if you, you know, grab the bull by the horn and you decide preemptively to do the right thing without being forced to do it by your creditors, right? That's what we should do. And, and what do we have to do? Because, you know, as I mentioned before, if you look at the numbers, the government is Collecting what is it like four, four and a half trillion dollars in uh in taxes, and it's spending something like six trillion dollars. I'm actually gonna look at the numbers. I'm gonna to go to the national debt clock and and see what the actual numbers are. I should have probably had this up on my screen before I started started this podcast, but I didn't. So I'm gonna to go to the national debt clock. And you can just go there yourself. So I'm not making these numbers up. It's uh, usdebtclock.org. And you can see the numbers, right? They tell you what the U.S. government is spending. So it's spending $6.14 trillion. So I was pretty close. That's what uh, the the spending is. But if you look at the total tax revenues for the United States, let me see where those are. It's 4.6 trillion dollars and so the deficit is 1.6 trillion but again that that excludes a lot of off-budget stuff so you really have to increase that spending number because i don't think that number counts the the spending it says yeah actually it says that's the actual spending the official spending is a little bit less so maybe maybe that is the number but i'm pretty sure that the deficit is going to clock in at better than two trillion dollars not the 1.566 trillion that is being estimated by this number but you know even those numbers are enormous but there is a huge problem between revenues and expenditures that needs to be fixed and there's an enormous national debt right now according to the national De- debt clock we're at 31.8 trillion now the debt ceiling is 31.4 trillion so we're already a few hundred billion above it and we haven't even suspended it yet so we shouldn't even be where we are but i have a feeling that as soon as we have the official increase, that number is going to spike. And we're going to see a number above $32 trillion in debt very quickly, uh, headed to $40 trillion over the next few years. We've got to deal with this crisis because it is completely unpayable. So what has to happen is that government has to cut spending dramatically. You really have to cut, I'd say, 30 to 50% of the federal budget. And the reason it's that high is because interest rates, which are now almost, what, a trillion dollars a year now on interest expense. I mean, right now, according to the, uh, this uh, US debt clock, we're still under 600 billion a year on net interest, but I'm pretty sure that the number is already higher than that. Um, I don't know why this number is still that low. I think we're getting closer to a trillion dollars a year in net interest payments, and that number is going to explode as more of the short term debt matures and has to be rolled over and as we borrow all this new money the new money we're borrowing a couple trillion dollars a year all of that has to be financed at 5% or so or you know if it's going to be short term um, maybe the government will try to do longer term debt because the yields on the you know the 10 year are in the 3s but still that's you know that's a much higher rate than what's maturing which which is like 25 basis points So we have this huge problem that needs to be solved. So we need massive cuts in government spending, not the Mickey Mouse, you know, phony cuts that we agreed to, which exempted national defense, exempted Medicare and Medicaid. You can't exempt the biggest line items. Social Security is about $1.3 trillion a year. Medicare is $1.6 trillion a year, and national defense is almost $800 billion. That's most of the spending you can't take all that off the table and say that's that's sacrosanct, we're not going to cut it. Uh, You're never going to address this problem. It's just going to get worse. So what the politicians have to do is make these substantial cuts in entitlements. And I think the best way to do that would be to means test them. I think that's the only way to do it. uh, So that people who are completely dependent on Social Security are still going to get something but the people who don't need it, won't get anything. Now, a lot of people say, well, that's not fair because they paid into it. They didn't pay in anything. They were conned by the government. That's what the government has to admit, that all the social security taxes that were collected have been spent. They're gone. Nobody is entitled to anything because there's nothing there. All you can do is rob the next generation, and that's not fair. Why should young people today be taxed so that older people can receive benefits when there's no money to pay them because the young people didn't vote for these politicians that that embezzled all this money, the older people, and they got the benefit of that money because as the government was spending their Social Security money, in theory, they got all that government, right? They, they were supposed to leave the Social Security money in some trust fund if, if it was if it was legitimate. But again, the problem was the trust fund had to invest all the money in U.S. government bonds, right? How convenient because all the money that was collected for Social Security was then loaned to the U.S. government that spent it. And so because it spent all that Social Security money, it didn't have to raise other taxes to cover it. But then, of course, there was no money set aside to cover Social Security benefits. It relies on the next generation. That's why the whole thing is a Ponzi scheme. But once you recognize that Social Security is a Ponzi scheme, it's not fair to force younger people to contribute into that Ponzi scheme, especially when it's impossible for them to ever to collect by forcing the next generation into the same scheme. Once you recognize it's a Ponzi scheme, you've got to bring it to an end. But you have to figure out how to take care of people who would be left destitute if you just completely eliminated it? But that's really what we need to do over time. We need to let the young people off the hook. We need to abolish the payroll tax completely so that people can are free to save for their own retirement. You know, the the, the reason we have Social Security, the reason that Roosevelt uh, came up with it, is he they they thought that you know people weren't smart enough to save for their own retirement, right? That they didn't want to arrive at retirement with no money. And so the government was going to take care of it for them. Well, the people would have saved something, right? If you, if the government didn't have social security taxes, the people paying those taxes at least would have saved some of the money. The government saved none of it. The government was worse at saving than any individual could have been because the government didn't save a dime. It spent it all. And of course, originally, when Social Security was enacted, it didn't apply to the self-employed, right? That took decades before the self-employed were subject to the, the tax. And the reason for that was that, you know, Roosevelt and Congress back then thought that if you were smart enough to run your own business, well, then you were smart enough to save for your own retirement. So there was no reason for the government to force you into a retirement plan. But if you were a worker, right, just some guy that had a job. Well, you didn't know any better. That's what government thought. And so those were the people that the government was going to uh, force to save because they were too dumb to do it on their own. But also, the way they imposed the tax, half of the tax was paid by the employer. And so the average voter thought they were getting something for free because they were going to get these Social Security benefits, but they were only going to have to pay for half of them. Their employer was going to pay for the other half. So the voters liked that because in their mind, they were getting a deal. But if they tried to impose the tax on the self-employed, well, if you're your own employer, you've got to pay both halves. And so there's no deal there. And so there was no reason to uh, include the self-employed because they would not see that as a benefit to them because they would be paying for the whole thing. And so, you know, there was no votes to be won because nothing was being given away. But the employees were duped in the thinking that they were getting something extra from government, but they weren't. Because where do the employers get the money? From the employees. You see, if you're an employer and the government imposes a payroll tax, and now you have to pay extra money to the government for everybody you hire, As far as the employer is concerned, that's the same thing as paying money to the worker. Doesn't matter. What the employer is concerned about is the total payroll costs, which would include all taxes and mandated benefits and whatever you have to pay to hire somebody. Those are your labor costs. You just assume paid all of the worker. But if you have to divert some of it to the government, well, then you have to pay the worker less because the worker has to cover all of his costs with his productivity. And so at the end of the day, the employer doesn't pay half of the payroll tax. The employee pays 100% of the payroll tax. He just has some of the payroll tax deducted before he even sees it, because the employer just sends that money to the government instead of sending it to him or her. And then, of course, there is the official deduction. So the whole thing was a scam to begin with. You never got something for nothing. And the reason they eventually you know, roped in the self-employed was by, you know, Social Security was broke, they were running out of money, and so they needed another source of tax revenue. And so they eventually included self-employed people who then, of course, have to pay officially both halves of that Social Security payroll tax, which is now combined with Medicare, about 15%. But we really have to get rid of that. But we need to kind of take Social Security and means test it, And people think, well, that would make it into welfare. But in reality, that's what it is, because the money to pay Social Security benefits really comes from the same source as the money that pays welfare benefits from current taxpayers. The idea that there's some fund is a bunch of lies, because even if there are government bonds in the Social Security Trust Fund, in order to turn those government bonds into cash that can be sent to Social Security recipients, the trust funds have to sell those bonds to the public or to the Fed that prints money, but that would be the same thing that they would have to do if they had no trust funds. The trust funds are an illusion. They're a trust-funded name only. There's nothing there to trust. There's nothing funded. So it is a gigantic welfare system, and so we need to treat it like a welfare system and stop pretending, right, that the people who are getting these benefits are entitled to them because they pay taxes it's an income tax. That's really what you paid. The social security tax was an income tax. So you just paid that income tax in addition to your regular income tax, but you're no more entitled to your social security benefits back than your tax, your income tax benefits or, you know, any other taxes that you might have paid that the government spent. But, you know, there are a lot of people, obviously, Warren Buffett doesn't need social security taxes, and of course, there are a lot of people a lot less wealthy than Warren Buffett that could get by without their social security. I think the the means test you know, should be a function of uh, assets too, not just um, income. I don't think that um, poorer people should subsidize the inheritance of of wealthier people, right, because there are a lot of people who die, right, with plenty of money, plenty of assets, and then they leave them to their kids. Well, maybe if they didn't have all the Social Security, they would die with quite as large an estate, and so the children of the rich wouldn't inherit as much, you know, you have a lot of people that want to have an estate tax, I want to eliminate the estate tax, I want zero estate tax. But I do think people that have a lot of money should spend that money before they die, rather than give it to their kids. I don't think that poor people, right, who are going to inherit nothing, should have to pay these payroll taxes, so that richer kids can can inherit, you know, a a bigger, a, a bigger windfall, right. So that would level that playing field in a much better way than an estate tax. Just force people who have a large net worth to live off of those investments, rather than uh, taking money from uh, younger people uh, who you know aren't gonna aren't gonna inherit anything. But I also you know recognize that when the government has to come clean and tell a lot of people that we're expecting Social Security, that you're not going to get what you expected. Either you're going to get less than expected, you're not going to get anything. And obviously, we could do other things like raise the retirement age and and different things to minimize uh, Social Security expenditures that that are coming out right now and Medicare too. But also, I think the government has to level with pensioners. People that used to work for the government are going to have to be told that they can't get as much money as they were promised because they were promised too much. The taxpayers don't have the resources to live up to these commitments. And so rather than forcing future taxpayers to pay for commitments that prior taxpayers, you know, never funded, right? That's, that's intergenerational theft. We have to bring the obligations down in line with the ability of the tax base to afford it. That's just reality. You know, Do I feel bad that people aren't going to get what they were promised? Yes, of course, but that's reality. Now, I also recognize the political reality is that I don't think that the U.S. government should tell people that they're not going to get as big a pension as they were promised. They're not going to get as much Social Security or any Social Security they were promised, right? All of these government promises are not going to be kept, but bondholders are going to be made whole that people that own U.S. Treasuries are going to get everything that they were promised. That's not fair, you know, especially when you think about it in political terms, a lot of the people that own U.S. Treasuries live in China, right? Or, you know, the Chinese government, the Japanese government, Europeans. Why are we going to make them whole and give a haircut to Americans who are expecting uh, benefits? Because it's, it's still a commitment. Right. The government is just as obligated to pay interest in principle on its debt as it's obligated to make uh, payments that it committed to uh, for Social Security, Medicare. Right. It's certainly in the eyes of the public. Legally, it might be a little different because legally nobody's entitled to any Social Security benefits. You've actually read the law. You're not entitled to anything, you know, regardless of what the politicians want to say when they're looking for votes, in reality, No, there is no real entitlement to anything, which is proof, again, that you just paid taxes. You didn't pay into some insurance plan, you paid a tax. And it's all just the way they dressed it up and marketed it. But I think if you're going to default on some commitments, you've got to be an equal opportunity defaulter. And so I think that in order to make this work, and I think for it to be better for the economy, we need to restructure the national debt. We actually need to default. Now, as what I was talking about before we raised the debt ceiling was that we didn't have to default. We we, we could have prioritized interest on the debt and just substantially cut everything else. I think that would be wrong. I don't think we should prioritize interest on the national debt. I don't think we should prioritize repaying principal on the national debt. I think we should restructure the national debt and bring it down to a manageable number. I think we have to admit to the world, we can't pay $32 trillion. We don't have the money. So let's reduce it. Maybe it's going to be 50 cents on the dollar. Maybe the United States government has to tell everybody that owns US treasuries, you're not going to get 100 cents on the dollar, you're going to get 50 cents on the dollar. That's it. That's what we're going to pay because that's what we can afford. And one of the reasons that we need to do this is because we need higher interest rates. Where they are right now are still not high enough. Rates have to go higher. But one of the barriers to higher interest rates is the enormity of the debt that we have and the inability of the government to pay those higher interest rates on the the, the balance. So the only way the government could afford to pay 7, 8, 9% interest is if the debt is a lot smaller. Well, the only way the debt's going to get smaller is if we restructure it. If we default on it, that's what we need to do. Now, might that result in a downgrade of our credit? Sure, but who cares? I'd rather reduce the debt, even if that means our credit rating drops. But in reality, if we repudiated half our debt and at the same time, cut Social Security, cut Medicare, cut the military and balance the budget, right? So we don't even have to borrow any more money. We balance the budget. Who cares what our credit rating is because we're not issuing any more debt? doesn't matter, right? Our credit rating is only important if we have to borrow money. I don't want the U.S. government to borrow money. There's no reason. Anything that's worth doing is worth paying for. The government can levy taxes. If the government wants to do something, then let the voters know how much it's going to cost. And if the voters don't want to pay for it, then don't do it. It's as simple as that. The reason the voters are willing to accept so much government spending is because they don't have to pay for it. They think they're getting something for free. If every time Congress had to propose a new program, they had to come up with a means of paying for it. And they had to present at the same time, here is this new program. Here's what it's going to cost. And these are the taxes that are going to go up to make it possible. Most of this stuff wouldn't pass. Most Americans don't want the government if, if they have to get a bill. They only want the government if they think somebody else is going to get the bill or nobody is going to get the bill. But also, I think that the best thing that could happen to our creditors is a restructuring, certainly the ones that are going to hold the bonds to maturity. right? obviously, if you're just flipping these things, uh, you're going to get stuck uh, if there's a you know default or a restructuring. But if you own a U.S. Treasury right now, let's say a 30-year Treasury and the government does what I think we need to do, which is an honest restructuring, we cut spending across the board, title int- you know, the principal on the debt, we balance our budget, right? We do all those things, we're not going to have any more inflation, right? In fact, the dollar might gain value. Remember, the natural tendency for a productive free market economy. And we would be far more productive if we eliminated all this government and eliminated all this debt. And of course we can also eliminate a lot of rules and regulations that bring in no revenue to the government but deprive the country of a lot of productivity. If we make all the free market reforms that I would like to see enacted, we're going to see prices declining. The value of money is going to go up. So even if you get paid 50 cents on the dollar, those dollars could be worth a lot more than 50 cents. Maybe they're worth 60 cents or 70 cents because prices have gone down and the purchasing power of your money has gone up. Alternatively, if we don't do what I'm saying, if we continue to live in denial, if the government continues to pretend that nobody has to take a haircut, everyone's going to get a crew cut. People are going to get you know, shave. people are going to get, you know, mohawked uh, by inflation. That's what's going to happen. Since we can't pay the debt, if we don't have the integrity to honestly default and restructure, we're going to do it dishonestly. We're going to repudiate these obligations through inflation. And I believe everybody, including the bondholders, will take a bigger loss due to inflation than the one I would impose due to a restructuring. Because even if our creditors collect 100 cents on the dollar, the dollar might only be worth 10 cents. There could be a 90% loss in purchasing power if we don't restructure. Whereas my 50% reduction will result in far less significant real losses. The only difference is the losses happen now. People have to recognize it now. And the politicians have to be held responsible for it now. That's why it's never going to happen. Because no politician wants to be held responsible for anything. Nobody wants to create a crisis that they can postpone till after the next election, because they may not win. They may not be in office. And if there are in office, well, then all they care about is staying in office for another term. And so this is not going to happen, right? All we are going to do is print money. The debt ceiling will be no limit uh, on the debt that we accumulate. And we're going to have a real crisis. The crisis is the debt, and it's not going to be us not willing to borrow. Because again, as I've said, we will borrow any money that the lenders are dumb enough to loan us. The crisis is going to come when those dumb lenders wise up, and they don't want to lend us any more money, and the only lender is the Fed, and that's runaway inflation, and that's when the real value of U.S. Treasuries collapses, because the dollars that they're denominated in are going to crash. Anyway, that's it for today. My next podcast, I should be uh, back in the US. If not, maybe I'm going to slip one more in uh, from the UK before I return. And hopefully, I will have regained access to my Twitter account by then. Bye for now.